Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This is the week that Theresa May is signing the letter that will trigger Article 50. We're not going to talk about that. We will be talking about that in future episodes, I promise you. What we're bringing you this week is a conversation we recorded just after the attacks on Westminster and Parliament. We spoke with Richard Dearlove last Friday, so less than 48 hours after those attacks. Richard Dearlove is the person who used to be responsible for MI6. He ran MI6 back at the turn of this century. I feel I should say up front, this is not going to be a conversation about the Iraq war or about the Chilcot inquiry. Some of you might feel that we should be quizzing him about that, but we don't. If you do want to hear a conversation about Iraq, weapons of mass destruction, Chilcot, do listen to the one that I recorded with Glenn Rangwala just after the Chilcot report was published. You can find it on our website. We'll tweet the link. We cover a lot of ground there. We're talking to Richard Dearlove this time about security, about terrorism, about Trump, about NATO. I was joined by Aaron Rapport, and he does give Richard Dearlove, as you'll hear, quite a hard time. We started by talking about terrorism. It's been more than a decade since 7-7. So I began by asking Richard Dearlove just how hard are these attacks to stop? It's easier to stop conspiracies. Than than lone... Than lone wolves. And that this is the third attack, I think, in which someone has used a vehicle to mow down pedestrians. So you've got the attack on the Esplanade in Nice. You've got the lorry incident in Berlin. And now you've got this car on Westminster Bridge. And, I mean, I think I gather that if you look at some of the ISIS websites... They've been advocating these sorts of attack. So it's not, unfortunately, particularly surprising that it's happened. And I guess, you know, one should worry about more such incidents in the future. And of course, it's very easy for a single guy or woman or whoever just to climb in a car, having, you know, wrecked a route you know, where they know there are going to be a lot of tourists or a lot of people out enjoying themselves, and then find a place where you can drive a vehicle onto pedestrian access because it's not blocked. And it's very difficult to stop one person through good intelligence work. I mean, in a way, that's a pretty bleak assessment. If I could not put a positive spin on it by any stretch of the imagination, but just add to what Sir Richard has said, is that it's true, I think, that this is a type of attack that is very easy to execute. That being said, in a way... This is a good sign for counterterrorism efforts in the West in that these are the types of attacks now that seem to be the ones being executed because there's a trade-off on the one hand between amount of damage you can do and on the other hand, as a terrorist organization, the amount of signal or pre-warning that you give out that you're intending to do a lot of damage. So if you want to engage in a very dramatic, high-impact attack, that requires a lot of communication. It requires a lot of mobilization of personnel, materiel, whereas if you want to do something like this, whereas it can be horrific, certainly for the people involved, at the end of the day, it's not nearly as damaging as something like a September 11th or a 7-7 or uh, the Oklahoma City bombing in the United States. So on the one hand, yes, it's distressing that the cost of doing this is so low. On the other hand, 
it indicates that the ability to mobilize large surprise attacks, I would say, by ISIS or ISIS-affiliated groups is on the wane, or, or if it ever was, you know, really at a high point, it's not that strong. Yeah, I agree with that. But if you go back to the Nice attack, where you get a truck into a crowded area, then you can still cause an awful lot of damage and kill a lot of people. I agree with what you're saying generally, that, you know, a conspiracy like 9-11 requires communication, requires planning, it requires lots of activity, which now there's a fair chance of picking up from good intelligence coverage, because we've learned so much more over the last 15, 20 years. And I mean, I think it's worth saying that actually in the UK, you know, we learned about how to coordinate the intelligence community against, let's say, the Irish terrorist threat. We had a lot of practice in integrating human SIGINT analysis and getting a cross-government response to a problem. That now is the methodology that you would see being practiced by even sort of less sophisticated counter-terrorist capabilities. But if someone does something like this, it can still cause a great deal of shock. It can cause, you know, massive media reaction. And of course, in a way, we're our own worst enemies because the media reaction is so extraordinary and that amplifies and exaggerates, in a way, the nature of the problem. And of course, that's what it's designed that's right. to it's, it's designed to stimulate a reaction as much as it's designed to terrorize and kill. That in itself is an interesting question, exactly what was the strategic purpose, if any, of this attack? Because one argument could be, right, it's meant to sow uncertainty and disorder. It's meant to provoke, perhaps to elicit a response that might be over the top, which then aids recruitment efforts on behalf of ISIS. Or it could be, as John Mueller and Mark Stewart have argued about a lot of terrorists, it could be that this guy's just a loser. He's engaging in a little act of rage. His life has not turned out the way he wants. I mean, a lot of these people have very similar kind of background stories of not doing well in school, engaging in petty crime, and then kind of deciding maybe they, you know, they want to go out in a blaze of glory. And if you were to quiz them on the Quran or Islam, they'd get, you know, a D minus. So is this a kind of a death by cop? Yeah, I think there are. I mean, I think a number of these people are genuinely exactly that. They're losers. I mean, there are the sort of profound ideological terrorists who are driven and have focus and probably have knowledge. But I think there are others who are petty criminals who see this as a way of sort of glorifying their exit. What brings both of those examples together is that an act of terrorism is a form, an extreme form of political communication. It's about delivering a message very dramatically to a lot of people. And I think that this incident on Westminster Bridge, because of the chosen site and the way it unfurled, you know, it fits very much into that model. So you you mentioned the IRA, and this is also the week where we, I say we, we're burying Martin McGuinness. David Aronovich wrote this in The Times yesterday, and I wanted to ask you about it, where he said one of the reasons why we've been more successful at dealing with homegrown Islamist terrorism than the sort of regular IRA attacks, which we were less able to stop, is because we have more information coming from the communities in which these people live, that the Irish communities were very sealed, and actually it was very hard to get anyone to tell anyone anything. Whereas actually, the people that we're dealing with now live in communities which are much more mixed, and where actually the security services do often get to hear about some of these conspiracies before they they delivered. Is there any truth in that? 
There is a, a general truth, but in fact that judgment is based on the time that you make it. And what I mean by that is that although the IRA, the provisional IRA, was a very tight conspiratorial organisation, because it was organised and because it was structured and because it was disciplined, once it was penetrated, it was extremely vulnerable to seriously good intelligence work. So in a way... There's always a trade-off. The, the IRA split apart in the end and decided to pursue a political path because it knew it was losing, let's say, the intelligence war, which, you know, we became much, much more sophisticated in dealing with it. But in the early stages, that what you're saying is true. I think now the coverage of the intelligence community on the Islamist problem is, is reasonably good. But in my view, it's not good enough. And I think where we have failed or where we could improve is improving the performance within Muslim communities themselves to alert people to the problems that they have. And the Prevent agenda has achieved a certain amount of progress, but it, it hasn't really been quite as successful, I think, in my view, as some people hoped it would be. When we asked you to come on this podcast, we this makes it about sound a bit grand. We booked you before, of course, we knew what the events of this week would be. So there's a there's a wider context you know, related to this, but a wider context which we really wanted to talk to you about, starting with Trump, and then maybe working out or down or up from there. So what's your sense in an age of a Trump presidency of what the security challenges look like now? And so say say you're part of the British security establishment. Have things really changed since November or since January? Or it's a slightly unusual kind of presidency, but is it still really business as usual? It's maybe not well, an easy it's, question it's, to it, answer. It's a very unusual presidency. And of course, it started off with a number of incidents that you know, relate to you know, how the White House deals with the US intelligence community. So you've had the Flynn resignation... You've had these extraordinary allegations about, you know, Obama bugging Trump Tower and the fact that it was done by GCHQ for NSA. And you've had some very unfortunate statements made by the White House about CIA early on and about the FBI. And you've had Comey's comments. So there's an awful lot of um, smoke, as it were, and things that in previous administrations are completely unimaginable because all these issues would have been coordinated and thought about before people started making statements. I think, in essence, these are, at the moment, more indicative of an administration that doesn't really understand the intelligence community and how it works, and that maybe there's a process of adaption. And I, you know, very much hope that, you know, as the administration matures it'll get is that an as or is that an if i mean that's the question i mean one of the interesting things is right flynn certainly should have as the former head of the defense intelligence agency should have understood how the intelligence community in the united states works i mean i take a much more dark view um of of the trump administration's relationship with the intelligence community which you said he made some unfortunate statements about the cia Unfortunate, in my mind, kind of implies accidental, like whoops-a-daisy type moments, which I don't think is the case at all. I think this is akin to, in autocracies, what you would call coup-proofing, right? They view the intelligence community 
as an enemy agent embedded in the government that seeks to undermine them and, and get them out of power, possibly. No, because, I don't agree with that. Well, I, that's, I, that's, I, I, that's why we have these tete-a-tetes. Yeah, I think that's too extreme a view, and I don't think they review them as an enemy agent. I think that there is an ideological problem with people like Bannon, because, you know, Bannon, I think, probably has a sort of day fix. He has an ideology, he has a view of the world, and people who are that driven by their world view tend not to be very keen on having it sort of confused by listening to intelligence, which might cause them to alter their view. And there's a very good example of that, because if you read Kissinger's book on China, you know, he's talking to um, Mao. And I mean, Mao is actually saying to him at one passage in the book, look, we have an ideological view of the world which drives our policy and okay we have an efficient intelligence organization but we're not that worried about what they tell us because we know where we're going because we found the secret of how to run china and same with stalin right and, and, I, yeah, stalin, and stalin and, and you, i mean you're not interested in the facts you're interested in how it exactly. fits to your world actually view. if you look at the history of soviet intelligence that's interesting because they're massively successful at collecting intelligence but relating intelligence production to making policy was a real weakness in the Soviet system. And you can see many, many examples of that historically. For example, now, I mean, if you take Trump's statements about GCHQ, they are ridiculous. I mean, absolutely ridiculous, because it means he sort of tweeted without understanding how NSA and GCHQ work together in terms of the Yakuza Treaty. You could treat and that as an algebraic statement, by the way. You could say he tweeted about X without really understanding about X's relationship with Y, and yeah. it's it's not limited to this particular yeah. area. And I, I mean, I who knew I, who knew healthcare could be so complicated? <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose I'm an eternal optimist, and I do sort of hope that some of these issues will settle down. But you know, from the point of view of let's say the working relationship, the special relationship between. Uh, if we take the UK's specific interest and our alliance with the Americans on intelligence issues, there will have been some difficult and embarrassing conversations. But I think that the operational day-to-day relationship will be chugging on and it will not yet be affected or dented. And again, I'm very sceptical. I look at a person who operates in his national security organization kind of like you'd expect Saddam Hussein to, right? Let's put Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, let's put my close family members and give them high-level security clearances because I don't trust anybody else. Let's do the same. Let's have Steve Bannon on the National Security Council rather than professionals who know what the heck they're talking about. Trump has basically adversarial relationships with anybody he perceives as a threat to his power, and that circle basically only contracts to his immediate family members right, that are excluded from that adversarial kind of perspective. Maybe Tiffany is seen as a threat. Yeah, I'm not sure. Because you use the phrase as it, as it adapts and in a sense as they learn on the job. And, and we are, you know, Aaron mentioned it, we're, we're talking in between they pulled the healthcare vote last night and overnight he has said, you know, back me or I move on in yeah. this, in the way that he backs himself into these corners and then... No, he doesn't, David. He's a brilliant negotiator. And then it's brinkmanship. And does that does that a lot? This is, this is the most fake news we've ever put out on this. Yeah, show. I mean, it is brink. I agree, it's brinkmanship. But then, on the other hand, there are some, you know, Tillerson. There are some grown um, ups. Yeah, Mattis. Okay, McMaster is a sort of scholar soldier, mm-hmm. but with a rather narrow experience. But you know, he's an intelligent and bright guy and has the capability to learn fast. And so there are, you know, real areas of sanity there. 
I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the jury's still out. I mean, we, we, you know, we are actually in the middle of one policy crisis, if you wish, already, which is with North Korea. Because yeah. I was going to ask, if we turn the question around the other way, not what worries you about Trump, but what worries you out there in the world that he might have to deal well, with I mean, the first if the issue jury is, is out? Is, is North Korea. And, you know, the, the, there is only one solution to dealing with the North Koreans, which is to secure the cooperation of the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And it looks as though we may have seen some progress already in that he starts off making some very tough statements about the US's relations with China. Actually, I think that's quite a good place to start because no one's recently challenged the Chinese And his famous call to the Taiwanese uh, leader. Which, in in a way, is, is not a bad signal to deliver to the Chinese because they're misbehaving furiously in the South China Sea, you know, the Nine Dash Line and all this historical rubbish that gives them, you know, this massive claim in the area. And, you know, Obama was overcautious, in my view, in signalling to the Chinese. And, I mean, certainly I have friends in the Pentagon who tell me that the US Navy in the Pacific had been longing to send a tough message to the Chinese. Well, they've now had the opportunity to do so. And um, I think the Chinese have much more concern to be worried about North Korea than the Americans do. Because obviously, you know, if there's a crisis in North Korea, you have a huge flood of refugees into China. And of course, if North Korea continues down this track, the one nation in the world that can go nuclear really fast is Japan. And the one thing that the Chinese absolutely do not want is a nuclear-capable Japan. So they have huge incentives to try, as it were, to constrain the behaviour of the North Korean regime. And, well, we'll see how this plays out. But, I mean, Trump can't afford to get North Korea wrong because the regime is completely autistic. I was... uh, The microphone can't pick this up, but I was vigorously nodding in agreement with most of the things that were being said just now. I I think... The one thing I would say about the Obama administration, I I would agree, actually, that I think signaling towards China was a bit weak. How much of that was due to the fact that Obama inherited wars in the Middle East and he was a bit bogged down in that that area? That's an open question. You know, was the pivot to Asia executed in an optimal fashion? Certainly no. Now, I was just characterizing both the terrorist attack in London and certain actions by the Trump administration as less than rational. North Korea, the Kim regime, it strikes me as very rational. And especially whenever you get a transition period and a major adversary, like within the United States, as you're seeing right now, you want to test the waters a bit. And furthermore, you want to test how your main patron, China, is going to react to you rattling your sabers. So, yeah, this behavior seems pretty par for the course for uh, the, the Kim regime. Yes, I agree. They're testing. And um, a lot of their behavior has been designed to, you know, blackmail their adversaries into giving them economic support. Ironically, because, right? Blackmail through weakness. It's like a toddler, right? If you don't buy me the toy that I want, I'm going to hold my breath until I turn blue and, you know, faint on the middle of the floor. And, and people who don't really, you know, I hear people say this, looking at North Korea on the outside and not knowing much, and I don't know much about the regime, the fear that though they may be behaving rationally, there's also a kind of nothing to lose mentality. I mean, it is a failing regime. I mean, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, well, that, we, we, that you go out in a blaze of glory. I mean, is that 
But it's a failing regime that never fails. This is right. the problem. I know. So right. does it make sense to talk about regimes North in those Korea terms? North Korea failing since 1950. Exactly. <laughs> I've sat through so many meetings of the JIC in my past, at which we sort of predicted. Yeah. Joint intelligence yeah. Five years, yeah. three years, seven years. You know, how long is it going to last? But then for? nothing lasts nothing, forever you know. at some well, point. Well, at some point it will probably fall apart. And of course, when it does fall apart, it'll cause massive instability in the region. Yeah. And I mean, the Chinese incentive really is to make sure that there is stability on the Korean peninsula and that means to an extent supporting the North Korean mm-hmm. regime and not to give the United States excuse to put more it, force it, into it, the exactly South. and to keep yeah. the Americans at arm's length but I mean there is a there is a concern about North Korean weapons and I mean the problem is that the North Koreans have developed these weapon systems they're not as we would understand flight tested but they might work <laughs> that's scarier. Good, that's good enough. But the stakes, yeah, the stakes are high enough because yeah, we're not yeah, talking about yeah, slingshots. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they've got however many nuclear warheads now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've got rockets that two-staged the new Type of Dong 3, Dong 3 mm-hmm. which can probably reach the west coast of the United States. Most listeners probably don't know, but the way they measure the accuracy of nuclear warhead launchers is basically saying, you know, if we were to launch 100 percent hundred of these at a target, 50% would land how far away from the target? And, you know, good is the West has weapons that are like 10 meters, right? 50% would land within 10 meters. The trick with that is, though, if you have that inaccurate of a weapon, when it comes to thinking about things like anti-ballistic missile defense, it's like if they don't know where the missile is going to wind up going, it's harder for our systems to anticipate where the missile is going to end up going. Okay, so on that cheery note, let's move on to Russia. (laughs) Obviously, there are people who think that that's the real potential flashpoint. It may be the flashpoint for the Trump administration in that there are also people who believe he's not going to last four years because the material is already there. And when the time comes, the Republicans have all they need to get him out. But assuming he is still there, and we're talking about people testing the new regime, how dangerous could the Baltics or Ukraine or more broadly Eastern Europe be as a flashpoint? I'm not really of the view that Russia is a flashpoint in the way that you're describing. I mean, Russia is a significant problem. And, you know, we need a different relationship with Russia, or we should have a different relationship with Russia. But the idea that we're launched back towards a sort of basic crisis, and that it's a new Cold War, and that the Baltics are threatened, I I don't subscribe to that at all. I mean, we have a specific problem created by Russian invasion of Crimea by their interference in eastern Ukraine. And obviously, you know, we have a certain amount of rearmament. But I mean, let's be clear, you know, Russia is in a phase of quite serious post-imperial decline. Mm -hmm. Uh, Generally speaking, the massive armed forces on the ground are in a pretty poor state. They can mobilise for specific incidents because they've got good rocket forces and they've got good special forces and they they have, as it were, improved their deployability and capability. But the idea that, you know, they're going to engage in a European war, I think, is is completely fanciful. And I, I just don't agree with that. But how we deal with them is extremely difficult now for the Trump administration, how we meet that challenge. But I mean, I've... And, and is, is there a we here? Because when well, you say I, how I'm, we... I'm talking about... I'm really talking about NATO and, right. the, and the West. So I mean, I mean, I'm not separating the Trump administration from, from NATO. I, I blame the Obama administration for not having a dialogue with the Russians over Ukraine. And Ukraine 
after the Orange Revolution, when it sort of moved towards the West, was always going to be a super sensitive issue for the Russians. I mean, Ukraine is you know, fundamentally, culturally part of sort of Mother Russia, and it, it always was. And you can argue, I think, that we gave the Russians to understand that we wouldn't you know, pull Ukraine out of the Russian orbit, and that the fact that you know when the eu was politically at a pretty weak point in its historical cycle that ukraine should move towards the west was a phenomenally difficult blow for russian prestige that they should as it were lose ukraine at that particular point of time in those circumstances so they were always going to react really badly and we had no dialogue with them when this was happening and i think we got ourselves into quite a mess. And okay, the Russians then made it worse by taking back Crimea, but we all know historically the West was never going to go to war over Crimea. I mean, Crimea was given to Ukraine by Khrushchev probably in a drunken moment when he never imagined that by giving it to the Ukraine it would have any bearing on the sort of Soviet then Russian possession of that territory. It was just a sort of meaningless act. And I was only going to add that I think the U.S. sins and NATO's sins vis-a-vis handling Russia goes back much further than the Obama administration, goes back to the Clinton administration. So let me tell you what I think was the worst thing you could possibly do post-Cold War. And I think George Kennan, rest in peace, would agree with me on this. Expand the alliance, the NATO alliance, up to Russia's doorstep. Well, at the same time, drawing down the number of conventional forces that you could use to credibly deter a conventional attack short of tactical nuclear weapons. That's the situation we're in now today where the analyses that I've seen for the Baltic states, which, as you said, right, could Russia engage in a sustained series of campaigns against NATO forces in the West? Mm, Probably not, but they could do some real damage against the Baltics with their rocket forces and their special operations forces. And conventionally at the moment, I don't think NATO would have the wherewithal to do much about that. And then it becomes a question. It's like, well, do we trade New York for Tallinn or for for, uh, Vilnius? No, we do not. Right. So what the United States did was it had this bizarre moment in history, this Fukuyama end of history moment where it said, well, now NATO is no longer a security institution. It's this institution for expanding liberal democracy and capitalism and stabilizing states in Central and Eastern Europe. And because that's its purpose now, we can make these quote-unquote commitments to the security of these states that we know we'll never have to send any Americans to fight and die there. And at the same time, we can draw down forces by 90% and everybody wins, everybody's happening. Clearly, the Russians will understand that our intentions are benign because they've never had 20 to 25 million people killed in a world war from forces spilling over their borders from the West. Oh, you know, so I could go on and on on with this. I wouldn't wouldn't go quite as far as you, but I mean, I am in sympathy with your overall analysis. I mean, this is why I think that the one good thing that the Trump administration has done, perhaps by accident, is to raise a question over the future of NATO. You cannot talk to the Russians except from a position of strength. And by that, I mean a combination of strategic and tactical strength. And, you know, we have run down our conventional forces. So, I mean, what we need is NATO members, particularly Germany, to spend 2% of GDP on defence, And if we have a strength of NATO, I think we have a much, much better opportunity of getting a deal with the Russians. I think it's tough for Ukraine 
but the probability is we have to forget about Crimea. And that does raise an issue of sort of a judicial legal issue about the, the integrity of Ukraine. But, you know, being realistic, put that to one side. And then I think we can probably have a much better relationship with the Russians. And mm. if they're willing to talk to Trump in a way that they were not willing to talk to the Obama regime, and we have a NATO which is being strengthened, then uh, I would feel optimistic. But I mean, let's be serious about Russia. I mean, Russia's not in good shape. It's got lousy demographics, it's got a lousy economy, and its population is shrinking, or its European population is shrinking. And, you know, the outlook for Russia looks pretty bad. Except their leader looks very good shirtless on top of a horse. He looks So they've great. got that going for them. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing they're meant to have going for them is this amazing cyber ops capacity. Yeah, well, now, they, is that overblown? Yeah. Well... It sounds a bit hysterical to me, the way people talk about this well, incredible Russian capacity to destabilize. They have a sophisticated intelligence community. They've always been technically adept. You know, they're good chess players. And and the Americans are good poker players, and yeah, that's, and that's the context. Well, OK, it's chess versus poker oh. to an extent. But, you know, they're good at focusing their resources and having an impact. They've done it in Syria. And clearly, you know, if you took the US elections, I think that they probably wanted to make life difficult for Hillary Clinton, who they didn't want to be elected. But I think their pundits thought that she would be like everybody else. Like the they Trump did, administration. They is. didn't expect yeah. Trump to win. Um, I think they would have been a lot more circumspect if they'd thought that Trump was going to win because they wouldn't have needed to that be nasty some of the people who voted for Trump. Yeah. I think they and, might have also and, changed you know, their so mind. I, I, now you have this investigation running, you know, with Comey saying in the hearing recently, but... I mean, Comey wouldn't have been doing his job unless he hadn't been investigating Russian interference in the US elections. I think that this won't really turn out to be a, a stick that the Democrats can beat Trump with. They might beat individual members like Manafort and people who were in the Trump campaign earlier on. But and I, Page and Flynn. Yeah, and and I, I think that there will be some embarrassment that comes out of this. But will it destroy... The Trump administration, this relationship with the Russians? No, not in my opinion. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I, I don't know if we're allowed to broadcast this or not. So someone said to me last night, the Bank of Cyprus... If you know what went on there, well, I think you the know area, that Trump I, is living on borrowed time. All right. That's, that's a conspiracy theory, but like we know... Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, if there's a skeleton in the cupboard, my understanding from talking to people in the States is that in 2008, Trump borrowed money from the Russians when no one else would lend him money. Yeah, that's what the Bank of Cyprus yeah. is a and reference the, and to. And the question is, what terms, what were the conditions? And, you know, is that a sort of Watergate skeleton in the cupboard, which will clatter out at some point before the end of his four-year term. I mean, it's a question mark. And the answer is, I haven't a clue. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't looked know. recently. What are, the, uh, what are the bookies giving on the odds these days on a four-year term? It's exactly 50-50. Even money, so you can take your pick. So could I ask you a different kind of question, which is, so we're talking about the things that people are talking about. 
what are the things you think that we should be thinking about or worried about that no one is talking about at the moment or has kind of been squeezed by the fact that Trump, apart from anything else, is this kind of hoover up of news and attention. So it's very hard actually to think about anything else. He's like this giant shadow hanging over the world. Are there parts of the world that have sort of slipped off the, the radar and the attention of people in the West that we should be thinking about more than we are? Well, I think the issue that continues to worry me, you know, which is still topical, but it's less discussed at the moment, but it'll come back particularly as the weather improves, is, is migration. And the pressures causing migration and the movement of people away from the poorer parts of the world towards the wealthier world. And I think this is causing massive political disruption. I mean, you may be overreacting, but you have to admit that it's changing the politics of Europe. Oh, unquestionably. And, um, and I, I think, you know, we've had our eye taken away from that problem for a period of time, but, you know, once the Mediterranean weather improves, we, we're going to be back with the problem that we've had in previous years. Yeah. And I would just add to that uh, on the migration question. It's obviously a complex phenomenon. There's not one cause of migration, but in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's minds, increasingly in the international security scholar community, everything that's not climate change at this point is squirrel hunting, right, as opposed to going after big game. That is the issue. That's what's going to be driving migration. That's what's going to be driving epidemics. That's what's going to be driving political instability in the future. There was an interesting article the other day in the U.S. magazine Popular Science that was looking at the effects of climate change on North America and the United States in particular, and it basically said, by 100 years from now, basically everybody in the United States will want to live in the upper peninsula of Michigan because of the effects of, of climate change on the country uh, and different regions in the world. And so increasingly, you see not only scholars who look at international security, but also security organizations like, uh, I would say, the UK Ministry of Defense, but especially the, the US Department of Defense, who know that they're going to have to deal with a lot of these problems and possibly move a lot of their basing and their personnel around, right? Because we have stuff on the coasts and sea levels rise by a meter and a half or two meters. That's not, that's not a good situation for your ports. Do you think that's the bigger underlying story? Well, I certainly climate change and the impact of climate change is, is extremely worrying. And I agree with you that one of the primary causes of migration is actually climate change in Africa and, you know, rich agricultural land turning into desert and you know, people who are quite content to stay at home and farm and be peasant farmers, they, they just can't exist like that any longer. So they all push towards the north. I mean, the irony is, of course, you know, in some of the parts of the world that some of us are familiar with, climate change is an improvement because it gives you a longer agricultural cycle. It's good for Canada. And that's, uh, that's one of the complexities of it, right? Is it creates some, in the short to medium term, at least winners and losers. Exactly. You know, you can see here in the UK, you know, I'm quite interested in gardening and I enjoy the properties that... I live on and I have observed that, you know, I can grow in things now that I, I couldn't grow 15, 20 mm -hmm. years ago. To Trump's credit, actually, he's brought attention onto climate change now because Pruitt, his EPA head who had sued the EPA numerous times as an attorney in Oklahoma, thinks climate change is a, is a hoax and it's not happening. Or if it is happening, humans have nothing to do with it. Right? So this is, again, one of these things where perhaps despite his best efforts, he is drawing attention to it and he's raising concerns about, you know, what, what's going to happen to the Paris Agreement and, and things like I, that. I have to say I'm sceptical about man-made climate change, but I'm not sceptical about climate change. Yeah, it's hard to be sceptical you know, about climate change. I mean, climate, climate change. change is clearly happening, but you know, is it actually driven? 
by industrialization. We, we, yes. we probably shouldn't get into that one. <laughs> I mean, we can leave that to one yeah. side. Because, uh, a because, true false question, I would say, true. Because <laughs> I want to finish with a discussion about Europe because... Yeah. So we've talked to lots of people on this podcast and people who regularly appear on this podcast. We've had different views, but you know, this is Cambridge and the preponderance is of people to not just think that Remain was the position that they wish to adopt, but to assume that everybody thinks like that. But you didn't. You were cautious before the vote about your public position because of the role that you played. But since the vote, you've been fairly clear that you thought that Brexit was the outcome that you preferred. Do you want to say why, if I'm allowed to ask? Yes, you are allowed to ask. And I'm quite happy to explain why. And that wasn't a hostile question. It's no, a no, genu- I mean, genuinely... I, I don't feel it's a hostile question at all. I mean, I've been very strongly European in my orientation, in my career. You know, I probably know Europe better than most, given my background. You, I've had you a, worked I've had, there. I've had an awful lot to do with, you know, Europe, both particular countries and Brussels. And I think the reason I've changed my view over time is that I feel that the EU, as we see it at the moment, is coming to the end of its political life. And from the inside, we were having absolutely no impact on changing it. We were making very little progress. And the fact is that by leaving, we've delivered a massive shock, as it were, to the whole European experiment. I mean, you know, when a country as significant as the UK, you know, we're not Norway, we're not Switzerland, you know, we're not one of these small European countries whose relationship with Europe is pretty irrelevant, you know, in terms of its overall impact. This is something completely different, of a totally different order. And I think it's it's causing people to pose the question, you know, what next? Because I don't believe that the EU in its current form is equipped to solve the major problems that Europe is facing. It's failed on migration. It's failing on the currency issue. And it's failing really in relation to, you know, how you accommodate Germany into the European experiment. And if it can't provide answers to those really big historical questions, you know, the big the big issues, why are we all so devoted? We're, we're really linked into it almost by habit and for lack of alternatives. And, OK, it's huge risk in advocating what I advocate, which is, you know, what comes after the EU? What do we take out of the EU and what would be there in the future. And, and just to be clear, the huge risk is for us, or the huge risk is for both? Well, the huge risk is for both. And I think the risk is actually greater for Europe than it is for us. I think we're in a rather enviable position, because we're not part of the currency. We can return to a sort of mid-Atlantic policy position where we have always played an important role in all of Europe's crises, ultimately, you know, whether it's the defeat of Nazi Germany or whatever, or Napoleon, or Napoleon <laughs> to take it you know, we, we have, you know, we've played a crucial role and we'll go on playing a crucial role. I think that when we get down to the Brexit negotiations, they're not going to be decided by the Brussels Mandarin. So forget about what Junkers is saying. Forget about what Barnier is saying. These guys are dyed-in-the-wool Brussels bureaucrats and they're completely influenced by the Commission view. It's going to be decided by the big national governments. And we have an absolutely crucial role in Europe, quite apart from our economic significance, on defence and security. We are the European leader. 
And I don't think that Europe can really afford to do without the British contribution when it has a serious terrorist problem to deal with, when it has a Russia to deal with, which is a very awkward and difficult player. And I think what we ought to say as we leave is, look, one of the deals we'll do for Europe is we'll spend more on defence in the UK because we play in a crucial role in terms of determining this aspect of European policy. And, I mean, interestingly, last week you saw this meeting with um, the Polish leader. I mean, the Poles are already getting extremely worried about us leaving because they are right up against the edge of the problem. And I think that as you get deeper into the negotiations, we've got some very strong cards to play. And I think we can reach probably an amicable detachment whereby we have an influential role and we get some deal which is is reasonable for both parties now and, and do you think british domestic politics will allow that because that's so that's both assuming that we have the capacity to negotiate in a way that we play our cards right but also so british domestic politics includes the scottish question now too yeah that that in a way the brexit negotiation doesn't get subsumed in a whole series of sort of domestic anxieties and also increasing course, voter dissatisfaction yeah. they want to know what the payoff is for them of course, there's a, there's a risk and a danger, and that's why you know Brexit is so problematic and why I have a lot of sympathy with people who would prefer just to have stuck with Remain. But I think this was almost inevitable. If you take a slightly longer-term view, the break was going to come. The trouble is that it coincides with a crisis in the party system in the UK. So you've got Labour imploding. You've got the Lib Dems you know, in a parlour state although beginning maybe to revive at the local level. You've got a complete hole in the centre. You know, you've got a Conservative government which doesn't look strong, but electorally might be strong, you know, if they were to hold an election. And then you've got the Scottish Nationalists. I mean, I think the Scottish Nationalists have, have misplayed their cards. I think this idea of a second referendum is, is ridiculous. I think they'll really rue the day that they called for a second referendum. And I, I think the Prime Minister's taken the right decision, which is to say nothing until after the Brexit negotiations are finished, by which time the Scottish issue might look rather different. And it, it looks pretty different now. I was just going to say, of course, if I were a UK or EU national, which I am not, I would have voted to remain. But I definitely understand that there's aspects of the EU that you can hate from either the right side or the left side of the political spectrum. I mean, I mean, I don't think it's any secret that Jeremy Corbyn, though nominally in favor of Remain as leader of the Labour Party, didn't really have his heart in it. No, and I just, I've just been reading Tony Benn's diaries, and you read Tony Benn's diaries, and you realize he fought a long, he didn't live to see it, but he fought a long campaign to... Oh, he to, was completely opposed to you. Right. All the way through. And, and he, he was consistent. He never, never did. No, and, he, and he stood his ground and, and waited for Margaret Thatcher to move to his position. It's extraordinary. That's the long view. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the left doesn't tend to care for organizations that promote tight monetary policy, for example. So, yeah, there's a lot to dislike about the EU from either perspective. The, the biggest questions in my mind right now are, does the UK have as much leverage over its bargaining partners in, in Europe as you portrayed it to be? It is the fifth largest economy in the world. It certainly is the largest military spender in Europe. But states can respond strategically when situations change, right? How reasonable will leaders in Germany and France and other places right outside the Brussels mandarins, how reasonable, quote unquote, will they be? I mean, before Brexit, people were saying, well, 
it would be irrational. It wouldn't be reasonable for the country to vote to leave for this economic reason and that economic reason. And now I'm hearing people saying, well, it would be irrational for the EU to drive a really hard bargain vis-a-vis Britain for all these economic reasons and security reasons. So it's, it's a little form of doublethink. You know, what was supposed to be a rational action that didn't prove that way in the first instance, right, prior to the June vote. But now those same rational constraining forces will leave things in a kind of hunky-dory situation. I think if you take the two, you know, primary powers in Europe, France and Germany, mm-hmm. I don't believe that Le Pen would win the French presidential election. I would agree with that. I think probably Macron will. But the Which just guarantees, by the way, now that I said I don't think Le Pen will win, she will win, because I've been wrong about every single okay, prediction okay. I've made. In well, I, I feared that she might, but I've rather changed my views in the last few weeks, and I've been in Paris and talked to a number of people. But I think that one thing you have to bear in mind with both France and Germany, you have got serious right-wing votes. So I think the best that we can hope for, the ADF in Germany and the, the, the Front National don't actually grab control of the agenda, but they're going to influence the agenda, which means that both governments are probably going to move to the right. Well, that's my lightly interpretation. And if they move to the right, that, as it were, favours the circumstances of Brexit, because you're going to have pressure groups in both countries who are less enthusiastic about EU membership. And, I mean, the fact is that if you take a longer-term historical view of the EU, it was a deal between you know German industry and French agriculture mm-hmm. initially. You know, then it was a political deal between a primarily active France and a reticent Germany, and it suited both countries very well. It did a fantastic job in, as it were, solving the problems of the Second World War. It created prosperity. It constrained Germany. I would say the Soviet Union actually did a better job of solving the uh, problems of (laughs) the Second World War. It created a little unity where there might not have been some... Oh, Aaron, you will complicate things. But, I mean, I think really that agenda's come to an end. You know, one has to look at it from a different perspective now. And the courageous thing, I think, is to think about how Europe might be configured in 10 to 15 years' time. I mean, the fact is that we have allowed, I mean, I'm going to offend some people by saying this, you know, too much influence to the small European nations. They've got to be, as it were, constrained that you can't run a Europe at 26 with an equal voice for every country. That's one of the reasons why I think that the EU ultimately is running out of road. Thank you to Aaron and to Richard Dearlove. We're going to tell you about a few podcasts that we think that you might like if you like this one. And this week, it's Intelligence Squared. It hosts pretty amazing debates with some really interesting people. They've got one coming up on fake news with Armando Iannucci, Jonathan Friedland. They've got one, the title of the debate, Donald Trump is making America great again. And that will feature, among other people, Conrad Black and Aaron Banks making the case. I've done a few of these debates. I did one recently. You can catch on their podcast. It was on The New Optimism with Matt Ridley. I was the pessimist on that panel. You may or may not be surprised to hear. The next Intelligence Squared podcast comes out tomorrow. It's about globalization and also global warming. If you like this podcast, we really think you'll like Intelligence Squared. Next week on our podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to bring you some conversations that we'll record at a conference that's happening in Cambridge about power in the digital age. And again, we've got some really interesting people coming to that, including Emily Bell from The Guardian 
and we're going to be talking to them about who really rules the world in the age of Facebook. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic t-shirts, soft, structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim, all made right here in the USA, with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code GRATEFULAG23. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.